Topology constraints in Kubernetes can be tricky, requiring particular configuration, and also for organizations moving from VM-backed infrastructure, the things they're going to have to be learning when it comes to infrastructure as code moving over to a Kubernetes environment, in this case, AKS in this podcast, where we'll be speaking to Martin, who is a platform team lead at Umbraco in Denmark. Martin shares his experience working as a team leader, still maintaining access and working on the technical side, but also sharing his experience as a manager and what it's like to be building a team that's going to be tackling these challenges. The things that they faced when migrating over to AKS, as well as the successes and the benefits that they've, getting, that they've been getting from that change. This podcast is sponsored by Learn K8s. Learn K8s is a training organization that offers classes that are either taught publicly or private instruction, 60% practical, 40% theoretical, very much focusing on the hands-on side of things. Like I said, can either be done online or in person. You have access to the material for the rest of your life, so you can get all that juicy Kubernetes knowledge that you want to have so much. That being said, let's take a look at the episode. All right, Martin, welcome to the CubeFM podcast. Very nice to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Bob. Absolute pleasure. So if you have a new Kubernetes cluster, which three tools would you install? That is a good question. I uh, like to uh, run my uh, setups uh, kind of the, uh, what's it called, node second. Um, so uh, usually we uh, we um, we put in, uh, what's it called, uh, uh, Calico, just for some very basic network policies, nothing fancy set up. Uh, and then we, at least where we work, uh, we just use uh, normal Helm charts, no fancy uh, fancy technologies. Um, for the third uh, thing, is it might not be a Kubernetes technology, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Terraform and managing uh, my infrastructure that way around. Uh, because it just uh, fits seamlessly together with all the other... Uh, other bits of infrastructure that we have in our setup. Good to know. Just out of curiosity with Terraform, have you tried Open Tofu yet? Nope. That's okay. Nope, nope, nope. I I, uh, I know that it exists. I wanted to just uh, wanted to give it a, a look, but I I'm, I'm kind of busy in my everyday life, and we have a lot of already invested into Terraform. Uh, so uh, it's definitely on my radar, but but just hadn't had the chance to look at it yet. It's all good. Not a problem. Uh, in terms of getting to know you a little bit better, can you tell our audience who you are and where you work and what you're doing? Yeah. So my name is uh, Martin Clausen. I'm uh, 37 years old and I live in Denmark. And I uh, work for this uh, crazy company called uh, Umbraco. And what is Umbraco? Um, it's uh, one of the most friendly companies out there. We uh, do uh, CMS systems, um, which is actually open source. We have a huge community that helps us uh, build a, uh, I would say, awesome editor experience. And also it uh, very much aligns with how web applications are built on the .NET uh, framework in general. So what is it that I'm doing? I'm a... <laughs> Uh, somebody's going to kick my ass, but uh, I'm actually working in the department that tries to make money, which is the uh, cloud department. So we uh, take this uh, box of joy and we uh, spin up uh, CMS uh, instances uh, on the fly uh, with one-click deployments. We, uh, and we do a lot of uh, things on cloud that is not uh, 
possible natively or not at least without a lot of work involved in that. Um, yeah, so so that is kind of what I do. I am a team lead for two teams. So something we call the cloud core, which is basically core functionality. And then also a platform team, which is how we uh, host and run uh, cloud applications uh, within our teams. Right. So it's a fair amount of cloud. How did you get into cloud native? Was it through your work? Was it just a side hobby? How did that happen? Oh, that is a good question. Um, it's run of passage, I think. So uh, unbeknownst to me, when I first uh, started out my uh, career in software development, I was uh, super fortunate to uh, to uh, to get introduced to event-driven uh, architecture. Um, and that's just kind of stuck with me. And then uh, throughout my years uh, as a uh, software developer, I have been, been just taking along those uh, those uh, what's called tools of the trade. And I think it was back in 2016, I uh, happened to get a and I happened to get a gig at a uh, startup company who had some incredibly inspiring people, and that was actually my first uh, introduction to cloud. Back then, we did uh, um, Microsoft had a technology called Service Fabric, which is also a cluster-like uh, technology, but just uh, mainly focused on the uh, .NET uh, uh, .NET uh, was called environments, and that is, uh, and from there, like once you take a step into that world, you find out that there's just a lot of useful tools online that you don't need to hoof yourself and. One step takes the other, and then suddenly you are there. Fantastic. Now, the Kubernetes and cloud-native ecosystem moves very quickly. How do you stay up-to-date? How do you stay informed? What are the best resources that work for you? <laughs> and that's a good line. Um, interesting question. I try not to get uh, too much worked into uh, to, to the ups and downs uh, of what is happening out there. Uh, the whole Kubernetes uh, movement, I, it, it, it's way too fast for me. It, it feels like uh, all the front-end frameworks that everything uh, just pops up uh, every day. So so what I try to, to do is that I'm hanging around on uh, Dev.2, where I just kind of get uh, a sense of what is actually moving in the community. And if there's something that I find interesting, then I basically just Google search and I find blog posts, uh, uh, CubeFM uh, and stuff like that that just tries to get an get an idea uh, that way around. And if you could go back in time and give your, you know, uh, when you were starting out as, as an engineer, if you could go back and give, you know, one piece of advice, career advice, what would it be? I uh, get to learn people or how people work maybe a bit earlier in my career. Uh, it's not always, uh, or at least it I didn't uh, find it natural in my uh, younger years, but I kind of always seem to like figure out that that is actually the key to get uh, get things working. Um, people are amazing. They are frustrating. Uh, to to be able to 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 just listen to 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 people more, I'm not trying to be so stubborn and and be a bit more pragmatic. I think that it uh, would be um, be my take on that. That's a. I think it's a great point. And 
you know, when we think about the amount of work that goes into teaching people or all of us learn, you know, how to speak and how to communicate, a really important part of that is how to listen. And it's not something that's necessarily emphasized. So I think it's a really good point. Good. Um, all right. Now diving into the, you know, what we do for our monthly content discovery, we found an article that you wrote called AKS from the trenches, um, why zone topology might not be the best solution. So do you spend in, in your, in your job, you know, with managing different teams, do you spend more time writing code or looking after the infrastructure in your, in your day-to-day -day work? Nowadays it's writing more code. And we had a uh, couple of years back, we actually changed all our infrastructure into infrastructure as code. And that point in time, we, we already had an established cloud platform, and, but everything was just point and click. And businesses wanted to, uh, our business wanted to, to expand into multiple regions. And that was just not sustainable in the current way that we were doing that. So we took like a, a couple of months out of the book and, uh, we did everything in uh, infrastructure as code. And nowadays, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's surprisingly little on how, how much infrastructure we actually do touch uh, during our, let's say, daily, um, daily work. And before you started using AKS, what kind of setup did you have and what was the cause of the migration? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, at the very beginning, from where I started here, we had uh, we were running uh, like a big monolith, just hosted in Azure, more or less, uh, and a couple of um, uh, what's called VMs that we uh, was called manually just uh, fed it, uh, made updates to, uh, and back then there was a, a something called a Windows service, which is basically just a daemon that is running on uh, on uh, just a normal Windows uh, computer, and uh, I mean that was back then. And then uh, we moved into a more cloud native uh, setup uh, during a couple of rounds. So in the beginning, we had uh, we wanted to do uh, the whole Kubernetes uh, like a couple of. Uh, years ago, or at least when, when we started out this journey. Um, but back then, there's also some bureaucracy that needed to be uh, be withheld. So so we had to first do all our container applications in Windows containers and then host them on a VM. Um, and I mean, uh, then I got the team lead role, and then uh, suddenly we had some uh, really capable hands who actually know something about Kubernetes uh, and had tried to work with it before. And then that just seems like a natural step to just jump from one platform to the other, like so a series of steps in order to get there. And only thing I regret is uh, that we didn't do it faster. <laughs> And in order to do it faster, what would have needed to have happened? And also, you know, in terms of, you talked about in the beginning, like the importance of people here, getting stakeholders from upper management involved. What are the things that are necessary? Because a lot of the engineers that, you know, that are that are listening to our, our podcast and our audience are facing these challenges of, I know this is the right technical choice, but I've got to convince a lot of other people that this is the right one to do. And as you said, in an appropriate time in order to get things done as quickly as possible. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I I don't think that's the easy, easy part here. Either you have people who would like to work with you or you don't. 
for me, it was a matter of um, what's it called the normal uh, equation of uh, time uh, over hands uh, plus priority, meaning that that at least in in the cloud team we have never really been 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 that many people. So so whenever we like, when we chose to to do the regional setup that we had via infrastructure of code, that just seems like a perfect. A time to introduce Kubernetes as well. Luckily, at that time, we didn't have too many naysayers uh, or too much uh, what's it called uh, friction to to actually get it done. And 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 what what happened was that that in the end, uh, people actually didn't care, <laughs> which is which is 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 it's super super weird when you just get 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 things right the first time. So, so we have uh, not only my team, but we also have other teams who are relying on us uh, running a couple of their services. And at that point in time, we just had the uh, time to kind of, uh, I guess, handheld people into to delivering the tools and the continuous deployment pipelines to 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 them actually not care about the underlying hosting platform at which their applications were running. So removing that let's say friction of them having to know the technology and we can just take, take care of it uh, was actually a huge help for us. They didn't have to do anything to change their normal day routine uh, and uh, it's all for the better. And if you ask uh, business people, uh, would you like to have uh, redundancy and resilience, then uh, then there's only one, one right question and that is, uh, yes, of course, we would like to have that. So a, a matter of, uh, I guess, timing and, and and as little friction for other teams as possible. All right. Now, speaking of friction, is sailing on AKS always smooth? <laughs> oh, that was leading. <laughs> <laughs> um, not always. I, I, I mean, uh, mostly um, we, uh, we had an incident in June. That uh, took us a bit, uh, bit by surprise, but but oh boy, if it wasn't the the consequences of our own choices back then. But I mean, you know, of course, you only plan outages, or it's great to have incidents, and in, you know, in summer at at four p.m. on a Friday, right? So, what exactly happened? So, um, maybe I need to tee up a little, like okay. so, uh, so, so, so what. What we allow other teams to do is basically just spin up new services and then just push them directly into our cluster. And that means that uh, memory and CPU uh, usage is actually very much of a concern to us. And especially if we know when, when, when people are pushing new software into, into the cluster. So, uh, the let's say the big issue was that at some point uh, a new service was pushed into our cluster and little been known to us because we weren't really uh, what's it called aware that 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 we were strained on memory uh, already uh, we saw some intermittent failures uh, in production and just for you know the sake of context as well what are pod topology spread constraints and why would you need them what's their purpose uh, good question. So, um, how we configured our uh, yeah. So what? So a little bit about the uh, topology constraints. So, 
in a data center, it's not just one brick of a data center that you just host your cluster in, but more often than not, some data centers are actually um, been parted into multiple zones. So in order to have high resilience, um, you would like to apply a zone topology to ensure that your applications in running in multiple zones or in multiple instances. And the thing about these zones are that they usually come with their own power supply or network backbone. So meaning that in case of natural catastrophe, or if some uh, data center, uh, there's a data center outage, you will actually be saved by this uh, zone topology or this threat um, topology uh, in most cases. And how can pod topology spread constraints make a node run out of memory? And if so, how do you fix it? Um, <laughs> yeah, so this was a bit uh, the issue that we had. We, you know, we didn't know that that was a problem. So, so, so a little for our setup was that we have basically told Kubernetes that uh, that uh, please run these uh, free uh, API instances in three different zones, and no matter what, uh, don't change the the don't 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 let's say balance parts on in in, in other uh, zones than we actually have set. So at some point we had a. Uh, we had a, um, let's say, a new service came into our cluster. Uh, it's not only APIs that we host, but in this case, we uh, were hosting a worker service, uh, let's say, in zone two. And then we, uh, um, how we, you know, like the way that we found out that we actually had an issue, do you know, like that feeling when the head, uh, your hair starts uh, being raising on your necks, but you're not entirely sure what it is. So, so, so during the day, our team has been complaining, not complaining, but highlighting not to us, but internally in within our cloud group that, Hey, something seems a bit, um, and and what had happened was that some some team has a, a push in a new service, and that just happened to make our uh, a node in our cluster in one zone run out of memory. And because the way that we had defined our topology constraints, we will continuously try to just reschedule new parts onto that node. And for the sake, Kubernetes just did what what it, uh, we have told it, which is basically uh, just keep trying until uh, something was afloat. Uh, and then I guess it was little uh, late on the Friday, uh, you know, like uh, that sudden realization that, hey, this is maybe maybe something that, that is wrong with our hosting platform. And uh, lo and behold, it was. <laughs> so, so we kind of... Uh, not kind of screwed up, but but we were a, little ba a bit baffled on why we we um, this was was the like this was the behavior that we were seeing, and we didn't really able to correlate uh, what it was. Yeah, and at any point was you know increasing the number of nodes was that considered? Yeah, yeah. So so actually that was what was our first uh, first thought was that uh, well how hard can this be? We're just gonna increase uh, our node count by one. And so what happened here was that when we increased the node count by one, we didn't see that the pods were out of balance throughout the cluster. 
which was our expectation in the beginning. But the new node that we created, that was created in zone number one. But it was actually zone in our node two, which went zone two, which was out of memory. So the topology constraint that we had applied here and basically just didn't work, more or less. Um, so, so in order to, because I just really wanted people to go on, on, on weekend, we uh, bumped the amount of nodes to six nodes, which would um, make a sufficient room in the cluster for, for applications to run smoothly again. But it, but it, it was kind of journey to get, get to there. Still, everyone was able to leave on Friday in June, which I think is quite important for everybody. <laughs> Once again, the people factor. Is this something that you think you could have predicted? And what would you have done differently in hindsight? Uh, I, I, to be honest, I don't think we could have predicted this. This is just something that that um, unless you have experience with these con uh, topology constraints, like you can sit around and you can talk uh, for ages about the choices that you make. But unless that you uh, investigate each of your choices, you try to go to the logical conclusions of each, then then like as a as a team who's jumping onto Kubernetes in the beginning, I don't think that this is something that you would be be aware of, uh, at least without rigorous testing and multiple uh, let's say third party consultants and stuff like that. And and based on that, do you think that? Pod topology spread constraints should be used sparingly or just not at all. Uh, I well, it de uh, famous. It depends. In the beginning, if you're just getting onboarded to Kubernetes, I would probably suggest just to keep it uh, keep it very simple. Don't um, don't jump on the topology constraint in the beginning, and then then get out and and ship a, a working cluster um, with working software on it. And once you are a bit more confident, I, I would uh, easily uh, recommend going into um, these part topologies and just to to make sure that that you have some sort of resilience in in uh, in place in case of data center breakdowns or something like that. Um, so so it so so start out easy and then 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 go into it. Uh, that is probably my recommendation. And in terms of avoiding situations like this in the future, do you have any plans or best practices in order for those things not to happen? Uh, yeah. So, so, so we, uh, so, so our teams, uh, two times a week, we are running something that is called the DevOps standup, where we just look at the, uh, basically just look at dashboards and application logs and just trying to, to see if something is admitted. Uh, back then, we had been running uh, Kubernetes for a year without any challenges. So at that point in time, we decided to to include Kubernetes into this uh, DevOps standup just to keep just to like keep an eye on 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 what it actually did and and whether or not the cluster was healthy. Uh, currently, we are looking into applying uh, finding out some alert on metrics. So so we should be. Uh, be alerted if we see uh, high restarts count of pods or other, uh, let's say, intermediate failures. You know, it's on a Friday, getting close to 4 p.m. People want to go home, do fun things <laughs> in the summer. Uh, you know, it stays very light in Denmark until late. <laughs> so that's that's something to enjoy. What was the atmosphere like during the incident? Um, I uh, it, it it was pretty good. 
like I uh, I really enjoy my team and uh, they also uh, like bringing where well, uh, do what they do. So uh, I think it was okay. Of course, people are a bit you know like hesitant uh, to go home. Uh, it wasn't like I kept everybody on board. Just uh, like I think we were two or three people just trying to 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 hack our way out of it. And I think that after an hour, maybe one and a half, and we were actually done. You seem like quite a calm person. Not everybody has that, you know, sort of demeanor way of looking at things. How do you know? How do you keep calm in those situations, and how do you keep your team calm? Because for some people, it can be very stressful. One thing that I, I really try to to not do is panic, uh, because I I rather want it to be a more creative uh, process. Like when we are creative and we are curious, we have a lot more headroom for problem solving. And the way that 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 I just try to 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 communicate that to my team is that that if if we see that things are getting uh, you know tense, it's okay for us just to step outside for uh, for a couple of minutes and just take a deep breather and just say, hey, uh, what are what our what is our options in this uh, in this situation? And the more that I can. The more that I can contribute to a calm environment, and the better that I, the, the like it rubs off on on people, and also the people that I have on my team, I completely trust them. I know that they are super skilled, and I know that they are doing the very best that they can. So 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 me, uh, I, I mean, it, um. We'll try to keep things as light as possible uh, throughout the throughout the incidents. And of course, uh, there are people uh, externally who are worried about like when is it going to happen and stuff like that. But we just say that we are trying our best, and then make sure that the creative uh, processes for problem solving are are highlighted in in due time. And then usually we all always do a retrospective on it. And if uh, some people have some, let's say, concerns about like, what if it happens again and stuff like that, we we are taking uh, actions on like, what is it that we can do uh, in order not to get into this situation again? But, you know, sometimes you're just out of luck. Absolutely. I think we can all agree. With the, the element though of, like you said, you know, giving creativity and space for that, and then, and then also the other things in there too, including, you know, doing a retro. One thing that I find that organizations struggle a lot with is that as much as the energy level might be really high, there may not be a common understanding of what the objective is. How do you go about, you know, creating common goals, making sure that everyone's really aligned and on the same page so that they're all working towards the same thing and that there's not one person or in some cases, groups of people that might be going in one direction and others in another. Oh wow, that is a, a very very important question. I for me, it's about creating the environment. If if the environment is right, and we have some basic rules that everybody uh, follow, is that we we listen and we are attentive to 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 everybody's thoughts. Like it um, as a leader, it's my job to kind of set the destination of where we are going, but not necessarily how. 
we are getting there. Like I can set the boundaries from what parameters that we are working into. But if I start uh, yelling at people or telling me exactly how to write their code, like the first thing I know is that the people will just leave my team. So, so for me, it, it's all about like, of course, setting the clear goals of what is it that we want to achieve, but then, and then setting the environment. And then I'll just try to, to be supportive of whatever and then wherever the team is, is going to go. And of course, like I'm, I'm also a, a software developer. I, I also have opinions and I also have ideas. Uh, but in the end, I, I, I really try to take my, my, uh, my own ego out of it and, and let the best uh, ideas win. Um, and, and it's okay to disagree sometimes. Um, that is uh, actually encouraged. Um, but as long as we are getting forth all the ideas uh, that works towards that common goal and we are achieving that goal, then uh, I'm a happy camper. And another thing to be a happy camper, I think for a lot of folks out there is, and you know, this, this podcast will be released in early 2024. So it's a time where people might have a lot of goals and talk about this year, I want to have more work-life balance or this year, you know, I want to exercise more. In your case, one of the things that you seem to be interested in is, is precisely that, right? Is exercise and, and having this kind of balance. Can you talk about that? And, and also the nature of hard work when doing physical activities and how that might work to relate to work-related activities as you can't really achieve results just kind of sitting and trying to float by. So tell me about your experience in that regard. Uh, that is uh, kind of my life philosophy <laughs> that you are like, uh, hopefully I, I could spend hours talking about it. Um, in general, I feel like, like if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, in order to have a perfectly healthy mind, you also need a healthy body. Uh, and and those two are just connected, in my opinion. Um, you can't live life in your head. Sometimes you need to get out and, and like and do physical activities to try to uh, like. Trust me, we are doing uh, trying to reach the mental barriers uh, each and every day. Uh, but but that also needs to be true for for I guess physical activity. Um, Work-life balance is a thing. Like you, you're not a workhorse. People are not a workhorse. Uh, or in like, like if if you truly do do what you enjoy in life, like being together with friends and family, that will give you the um, guess energy and motivation to to um, to also excel in in your work. And just how I kind of think about it. Uh, so I, I try as soon as uh, it's four o'clock, like, trust me, I have my share uh, amount of uh, working home uh, hours and additional work hours, but I, I, at least as I'm <laughs> getting, getting a bit older, I'm, I'm starting to uh, appreciate uh, other things in life as well. Um, and if it's uh, reading or exercising, then uh, I'm just all for it. Fantastic. I think it's very important for, it's something that we hear a lot, but I don't think you can hear it too many times and from too many different angles. And so to, to hear it directly and that it's not to say that everyone has to do ultra marathons or do this or that, but find something that works for you. It could be going for a walk. It could be swimming. It could be a million different things, but something that gets you away from screens that gives you time to yourself and to be able to disconnect 
uh, from from work related things or reconnect. You know, sports can also be a social activity. So I, I really, I really, really agree with that. So what's next for you? Um, can we expect an article in the future about you know EKS from the trenches or what? What are you, what are you going to be working <laughs> on next? I uh, well, we we had this had been uh, many issues uh, with the Kubernetes for a long time, so I'm I'm not sure that I I can do more uh, AKS uh, from the trenches. Hopefully, hopefully not. Um, so so for me, like I uh, I would like to go out and do uh, more uh, live uh, presentations. Actually, we uh, have some uh, local community uh, communities where I really want to go out and and speak to other people. And be more interested in, and technology-wise, I think there's a lot of things going on on uh, Azure, which is where I had my uh, home for quite a while, uh, with abstractions up on top of Kubernetes, where you don't even need to know that Kubernetes is uh, is running uh, down there, and so all sorts of uh, new uh, hosting uh, platforms or containerized services or something like that. So still, uh, still in the game, and still just trying to to. Like to to figure out where this uh, crazy journey ends. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? Um, I'm not a social media kind of guy, um, but uh, I do uh, run a little side blog on uh, Dev.2, where you can find me at uh, Martin uh, HC, HC, uh, or else uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, where you can find me as well. Very good. Well, Martin, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed the conversation, both from the technical perspective and also on the human side. I think you really bring a lot to the game there. So keep up the amazing work and I hope our paths cross soon. Thank you, Bob. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.